So Mike Lind is my friend, and we're really excited to have him on to talk about his new book. But uh, Mike, you are uh, somebody that is has written a lot of books on a lot of different topics. You've been writing a lot recently about uh, economic nationalism and what that is and what it means. And I think there's a lot of confusion about what that is and what that means. I think the word nationalism, at least where I live in Berkeley, California, and probably where you live in Austin, Texas, has mostly negative connotations, but you've brought out, I think, the really positive dimension to this thing that you call economic, that we call economic nationalism that you've done a lot in your career to define. So we're going to talk a lot about that and also a lot about how to deal with um, rising social inequality. And um, yeah, let's get into it. Do you want to, um, did I leave anything out of your bio that you want to add that you think is important for people to know? Well, I rewrote a screen treatment for Johnny Cash in my youth, but apart from that, no. Uh, <laughs> is that true? I had, yeah, I had a varied career. Uh, what was that? Tell that story. Uh, well, so uh, I was working on a my my narrative poem, The Alamo, and buying books from an Austin Texana book dealer. Uh, and then so uh, this fellow named J.W. Burke, who was a friend of Johnny Cash's, uh, was writing the script for what was supposed to be a new Disney TV series. Uh, and I worked on that a little bit, got paid a little. Uh, and it bombed so badly, the pilot, <laughs> because uh, it starts off with uh, Cash as Davy Crockett in 1835 in Washington, D.C., about to go to Texas, where, of course, he's he's killed wow. in the Battle of the Alamo. And he runs into his old friend, General Andrew Jackson, now president. In fact, they were bitter enemies and Jackson destroyed Crockett's career. And that's wow. why he went to Texas, but this was Hollywood, right? Uh, and so uh, Crockett was 39. He's portrayed by Cash, who's about 60. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and for, for Andrew Jackson, uh, they had the late British actor, David Hemmings. I don't know if you remember but he was a small roly-poly British guy by that time. Uh, and so the opening scene is, uh, well, General Jackson, I haven't seen you since the Creek Indian War of 1813. Uh, and then President Andy Jackson says, oh, how marvelous to see you again, Colonel Crockett. So it kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> but it actually was, it was finally put on uh, by Disney. There are no DVDs, no cassette tapes, nothing. Uh, they've destroyed them all. It was it was so bad. Um, wow! And so, wow. Uh, that was my. But but what came out of it was I had an offer. I was in my mid twenties at the time. I had an offer uh, by an Arkansas movie producer uh, to write. Back in those days, there's still drive-in movies. There was a drive-in movie uh, subculture, you know. Uh, so I was offered a contract to write drive-in movies on three conditions. They had to be made for less than a million dollars a year. Uh, they had to be filmed entirely in Arkansas, and each one had to have a car chase. So, uh, so you know, sometimes I regret not going that way, but but I ended up going to the State Department and the New Yorker and Harper's and New America Foundation instead. <laughs> You're really the everyman. I mean, uh, the everything guy. I mean, you have I think at least twelve nonfiction books and. What five fiction and poetry books, Mike? Yeah, and a children's book, uh, All a right. Bonnet Girl, which won a 
Oppenheimer uh, toy prize. So, uh, and my latest is Hell to Pay, how the suppression of wages is destroying America. Rather inflammatory clickback title. <laughs> hey, you, cl- you, you hooked it's, it's me. It's pretty close to what I argue. Yeah. It's pretty close well, to let's get into it. Um, um, tell us a little bit about how, so how economic, to pay. Economic to... national. Well, let, yeah. Go ahead. So it economic nationalism you want to talk about first. Uh, yeah. yeah but, you know, nationalism has been vilified as Hitlerism, racism, et cetera, et cetera, which is really kind of stupid because all, almost all states in the General Assembly are nation states. You know, there's a dominant national cultural. They don't necessarily persecute minorities or anything, but there's a common language, common culture. Uh, so I tend to think of nationalism as nation statism as distinguished from, you know, dynastic empires like the Romanovs and the Habsburgs or, you know, city-states like Athens and Sparta. So, so it's a neutral term. Uh, but for people, you know, who can't get over economic nationalism, another term is developmentalism or developmental capitalism. And the difference between developmentalism and 19th century economic laissez-faire liberalism is that in, in liberalism, the state is a neutral umpire, right? It doesn't take sides between industries. It doesn't take sides between firms. It doesn't even take sides with its own nation's firms versus foreign firms. It's just, you know, purely a, it's an umpire. It's a referee. Uh, in developmentalism, the state is the coach of a team. And the team includes uh, industrialists, capitalists, uh, it also includes government, it includes universities, you know, researchers, and it includes workers, or it should include workers. So these are both uh, capitalist in the sense that you have mostly privately owned economy and, and mostly private banking, but there's a quite different view of the relationship of the state to the economy. Um, Mike, it seems like this vision, this developmental vision, I like that as a as a term. I think that actually in some ways is more clear about what you're describing. It seems like it's triumphed. I mean, even in just the, I think you and I have known each other now for maybe 15 years. And it seems like just in the time that we've known each other, this idea has triumphed. I mean, we already had big Department of Energy labs. We had big National Science Foundation grants to universities. We have a huge, you know, state in the United States. We have a huge government. We now are in the Biden period where a big investment that was bipartisan was made into getting microchip manufacturing back in the United States. So have you won? Is there even, is there really any uh, uh, remaining work to be done to make the case that you've made so successfully on uh, for economic nationalism and developmentalism? Well, I'm old enough that I was part of the original debate about industrial policy back in the 80s and the 90s, and we lost. And we lost for purely contingent historical reasons. Uh, That is, uh, after 1990, the Japanese economy tanked, and Japan was kind of the classic developmental state. And people had been pointing to its success in industrializing, moving up the value chain in industries. And it had a stock market bubble, as we did in 2008, it crashed. But instead of saying, oh, look, they had a stock market bubble and they you know, had a financial crisis, uh, people say, oh, well, see, that discredits the Japanese model. Anglo-American, Thatcher, Reagan, laissez-faire capitalism, yay. 
And at the same time, a little few years later, uh, the other great industrial capitalist uh, nation, uh, West Germany, absorbed uh, East Germany. Uh, and that imposed enormous costs on the German economy. They had very slow growth for about a decade. So again, another contingent historical factor. But I remember reading the articles at the time, the Anglo-Saxon model of free enterprise, Milton Friedman, Hayek, you know, uh, has triumphed over the German model and over the Japanese developmental state and the Korean developmental state and Taiwanese and so on. Uh, and so basically for 20 years, it was a consensus among the Clinton wing of the Democrats and, and mainstream Republicans that industrial policy was a bad word. It meant Solyndra, you know, the failed uh, federally backed uh, uh, solar power company. Uh, it meant picking losers instead of picking winners. Uh, what changed that was, I would argue, two things. On the right, what changed it has been the rise of China. Uh, and what really freaked people out was, was it in 2015 or 2014, China, the Chinese government released a paper uh, make it in China 2025, where they just announced they were going to move up into high value added production, not just do low wage work for U.S. multinationals anymore. Uh, and they just had like market shares that they were targeting globally. And that freaked out uh, a lot of Western business and, and national security because the assumption had been that China would be like Mexico with maquiladoras. It would do low-wage assembly of things made elsewhere. Uh, uh, so, And also the rising conflicts between this increasingly assertive China under Xi and its neighbors, India and Japan, the Philippines and, and the U.S., uh, were neighbors in the, the Western Pacific. Uh, so that led the right to reconsider their hitherto mindless libertarianism. Uh, the left, I think, and this is a danger. It, it's been driven largely by environmentalism. Uh, that is, they are taking the language of industrial policy and some of the mechanisms like development banks and, and tariffs and, and quotas and things like that. But th they're treating it as means to the end, not of what industrial policy historically has been in favor of, which is increasing the competitiveness of your own country or your own alliance system uh, in manufacturing compared to others, but uh, decarbonization, right? And so, so I, and in fact, I think this has triumphed in the Biden administration. There's, there, from the outside, I don't have any, any inside sources, but there appears to be some like Jake Sullivan who, who are, are looking at it from a security point of view and concerned about manufacturing in general. But many others, it's mainly a way to achieve decarbonization to fight climate change. And while you're at it, to mandate that companies provide daycare and have diversity, equity, inclusion policies, too. Is that your impression? Well, um, I mean, I think that's a really good summary, Mike. I mean, it seems like just to, before we get into the, I think the, I think your last part about the environment, I want to definitely get into, but it seems like just for folks to understand, I mean, would you care, would you characterize the, there being a set of kind of epics where we have a new deal era that maybe goes from the thirties to the seventies. And then we have a neoliberal era that goes from the seventies till sometime around 
over the last decade and that maybe we're now headed into yep. a period of, of, of economic nationalism. Is that, do you think about it that way? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in, in a number of my books, including The Next American Nation, uh, in uh, my history of the U.S. economy, entitled Land of Promise, uh, I, I have successive techno-economic eras. It's the term used by uh, followers of Joseph Schumpeter, the economist who, who studied technological innovation uh, more fruitfully than anybody else, in my opinion. Uh, and the basic idea is that we say we're in the same country that was founded in 1776 and we live under the same constitution adopted in 1788. But in practice, we've had a series of republics, informal republics. Uh, the first republic uh, was the agrarian uh, republic. Uh, and then it was succeeded by the age of steam. Uh, and then finally, by the age of... Uh, electricity and of the internal combustion engine, uh, which is really, it starts in the 20s, but it's really the New Deal era, as you say, up until the 70s and 80s, when the technological possibilities of the automobile and oil began, you know, had been pretty much exhausted. You had a slowdown in growth in all industrial countries. And I would argue because of underlying technological uh, reasons. Uh, so what ha happens in, in my view is that the institutions, both political and social, tend to lag behind the technology-driven innovations by a few decades or a few generations. There's some big crisis. Often it's in wartime, like the Civil War. Uh, what, during the Civil War, the, the Republicans and their allies in the North and Congress pushed through all kinds of modernizing legislation that had been bottled up. The, in the, you know, the railroad system, transcontinental railroad, the... Uh, Moral Land Grant Act, which created agricultural and mechanical colleges, all kinds of things. Uh, you, you then had another big lurch with the New Deal. And what I, as a Texan, am, am very mindful of that I think people in other parts of the country don't realize is that outside of the Northeast and parts of the West Coast, the New Deal was not experienced as a social democratic left-wing thing. It was experienced as developmental state capitalism. Uh, it was rural electrification. It was highways. It was federally sponsored defense manufacturing plants. So Uncle Sam was the state capitalist who during World War II and the Cold War developed much of the South and the Southwest and parts of California and turned them into the Sun Belt. Uh, so uh, what happened, in my opinion, is that that techno-economic paradigm based on automobiles and hydrocarbons, which was uh, the basis not only of the U.S., but of Germany and of, of East Asia, uh, kind of fizzled out by the 70s. You really could get, you know, the low-hanging fruit of productivity advances had been picked. And then we had the, the next industrial revolution uh, uh, with the digital technology and, and computers. Uh, and again, there's been a lag between the political response to it uh, and uh, uh, what has grown up kind of like a garden that hasn't been weeded. Uh, and, and this gets into like some of the work you've been doing with the Twitter files and, and with your colleagues, because what happened between the Civil War and the New Deal was these giant corporations grew up 
Uh, and it wasn't, they, they weren't evil. They, I mean, it made sense that they were big. It was because of economies of scale. But they, they grew up with this kind of early 19th century political order of states. And, and uh, you could only charter uh, corporations state by state. That's where the term trust comes from as an antitrust. Because you you, national corporations were illegal initially. They had to be a trust owning multiple state corporations. Uh, and uh, the, the states historically, contrary to libertarian propaganda, had regulated uh, a lot of industries at the state and local level. Uh, but now you have these monstrous national corporations, General Electric, U.S. Steel, global corporations. Uh, so one of the things the New Deal did was it didn't impose regulation on a laissez-faire economy. The states and cities had always had all kinds of regulations for safety and environment and quality standards, uh, but it nationalized it. Uh, and so I think what has happened with the digital revolution in the 90s, it was decided by Congress that the government would regulate it with a light hand, right? So you have Section 30 of the Communications Act, and we can talk about that. And we, and we didn't want to kill off this delicate, fragile flower of, of the Internet industry, right? Of, of Internet commerce was not taxed with sales taxes until fairly recently because it was so fragile, right? But we're now at the position where were, were these kind of cute little baby startups you know, in the 90s, and they were the little Davids who were killing the Goliaths like Apple and Google and, and, and Intel. They're now these enormous Leviathans. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being big because of economies of scale, you're not going to get, you know, 500 little, uh, you know, search engines. You're just not. Or 25 mom and pop, you know, aerospace corporations. Uh, but I do think that we're now at this crisis which is simultaneously a social crisis of adaptation to the fourth industrial revolution. And externally, it's a geopolitical crisis of competition with other countries, not limited to China, trying to master the same technologies for competitive purposes. So, so I think we're in, in living at the beginning of one of these great critical episodes of transition from one republic to another. That's really helpful, Michael. Um, I uh, I think you've had a big influence on my thinking um, around view, and so has Schumpeter, and so have people like Václav Smil and Jesse Osible who want us to pay attention to these underlying technological changes, which are ultimately physical transformations of the natural environment. And now we see with the internet, they're physical transformations of the information environment and the communications environment. Help. Um, can you spend? Can you say a little bit more about the relation? How you think of the relationship between those techno-industrial revolutions or paradigms, whatever you want to call them, and the politics? In other words, is there what? What is it that the the change? It seems like some of the changes you're describing, New Deal, new the New Deal era was sort of about managing industri- the industrial. Uh, the, the the industrial revolutions of of both steam and electricity to some extent, and also you could argue agriculture and energy. Um, the the internet and the rise of the digital era somehow seems to be related both to neoliberalism and to the anti economic nationalism. But can you kind of unpack those relationships and how you think about the 
I guess it's the techno industrial physical reality and the kind of dominant hegemonic ideological framework, the way people think about it. Well, the most important way that we need to change our way of thinking about it is to distinguish between manufacturing and infrastructure. Uh, and this is a distinction that tends to be ignored uh, uh, in politics and popular discourse and so on. So, for example, we're told about the Gilded Age with all of the robber barons, uh, and it mixes up finance and infrastructure and manufacturing. The, in reality, the, the real Gilded Age was the railroad age. It was infrastructure uh, between the 1830s and the uh, 1880s. Uh, and during that period, there were almost no large manufacturing corporations. We, we misremember this. Basically, the, the U.S. was a one-industry country. It was like a banana republic. So we had railroads instead of bananas. The Democrats, Republicans, they ran against each other, and they were both on retainer from the railroads. Uh, the railroads had multiple times the capitalization of the biggest steel companies, for example. It was only in the great merger wave of the 1890s followed by another one in the 1900s and a third in the 1920s, that you got large industrial manufacturing corporations. Uh, and General Electric was one, U.S. Steel, uh, many others that are, that are still recognized today. Uh, so why is this important? Well, it's important because the phrase robber barons nowadays is thrown around to mean any big business. But the original robber barons were aristocrats in Germany, they lived along the Rhine in the Middle Ages, and they would stretch out chains to block ships from traveling on the Rhine unless they paid them tolls. And that was, they were robber barons. They were toll barons, essentially. Uh, and I think you have to make a distinction, and it's very important politically and economically, between infrastructure barons and manufacturing barons. And manufacturing barons are never secure in their primacy, right? They can be wiped out by another company. They have certain advantages from scale. You know, it's difficult to enter a market, but still, you know, it's competitive oligopolies. Uh, you know, if it's drone manufacturing or aerospace or whatever, uh, they compete in global markets with firms of other countries, sometimes state-backed. Uh, infrastructure is just pure parasitism. It's pure rent, right? Uh, so, for example, Carlos Slim, the, the leading billionaire in Mexico, he got his money from the privatization of the Mexican telephone network, right, which is a natural monopoly. Uh, and so the New Deal uh, actually focused mostly on building new infrastructure. The equivalent of that today would be, you know, extending the Internet, you know, the last mile. Uh, but it also uh, really cracked down on the monopoly profits, that were being extracted. Believe it or not, in the 1920s, there were electricity barons. Uh, Samuel Insull, who started off working for uh, Thomas Edison, uh, eventually was disgraced and, and died as a fugitive from you know, justice. Uh, but but uh, in, well, Insull, he'd, he'd been acquitted, but he was essentially, he was kind of like uh, Madoff is today. He was just sort of public enemy number one. Uh, but it would, if, if that system had survived in the 1920s, then like the electricity barons who own like two or three giant electrical grids, they would be like Jeff Bezos today, you know, or, or, or some of these other electrical grid owners. Uh, 
uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, infrastructure owners. So the solution in the New Deal was to make this a price-regulated, low-profit uh, business. So today in 2023, you know, you read about, uh, uh, I'll just limit this to the infrastructure people. Elon Musk is in manufacturing, which is different, uh, apart from Twitter. Uh, but even that's competitive. Uh, but so, so infrastructure, it's search engines like Google, right? It's uh, uh, retail like Amazon. Uh, and, you know, so you know, their, their uh, owners and founders are household names. Nobody knows the name of the CEO of Con Edison, the electricity, you know, utility in, in the Northeast, right? Who gets, you know, millionaires paid decently, but is not a super billionaire with a giga yacht, right? You know, who is like making movies and buying the Washington Post and so on. So I think one of the things we need to consider is whether uh, maybe this old model, which is older than the United States, it's an old common law doctrine, uh, uh, going back to Britain. If you have something that's a natural monopoly, even if you build it yourself, there's like, like, only, like only one toll bridge across the Thames River, uh, then it becomes, uh, in the words of one U.S. case, uh, clothed with a public purpose. And the government can step in and say, well, you're not going to charge extortionate rates. You know, people have to cross the bridge. And, and it makes no sense to have like three bridges competing at the same you know, place in the river. They all go bankrupt simultaneously. So I, I think that uh, my vision of, of, of tech is that they're really two separate sectors. The infrastructure sector, which I think is kind of like the unregulated electricity and water sectors 100 years ago before they became boring public utilities that are privately owned, but, but rather dull and, and low profit. Uh, the manufacturing is a different subject, I, and we can talk about that separately. Well, yeah, I mean, this picture, though, Mike, is so compelling. I mean, in other words, you're sort of saying, look, we are, we're a nation that competes with other nations. We need to treat our capitalist industries as national citizens that we want to help be competitive in the world and serve American interests. And it's not socialism because we're not suggesting that these companies should be owned by the workers, um, except for to the extent to which they already are but through pension funds and whatnot. But um, setting that aside, controlled they're still controlled by the Schumpeterian entrepreneur. Um, and that all sort of subsidies, regulations, investments, whatever, should be evaluated according to that vision that this is not that you're actually in a completely different paradigm of thinking about national economic development than either socialism or laissez-faire capitalism in that it is it's about the national interest it's about the public interest it's not about uh, worker control of the means of production um, because we actually want that Schumpeterian entrepreneur. We want the Elon Musks of the world who are geniuses at engineering to be in charge. We don't want bureaucrats in charge. Um, but at the same time, we need to make sure that Elon Musk and the Google guys and ChatGPT and other new technologies are also in service of the national interest and at a minimum not undermining the national interest, but at more maximally advancing the national interest in the world because America is a good country. We're freedom loving. We're um, uh, much better to have America be a strong country internationally. 
So there's also a kind of moral vision there too. It's not just, uh, this is not just, you're not, uh, what you're describing developmentalism is not purely technocratic. It's also saying that, that the United States needs to do this. We need to have this vision because America is the land of the free and the land of opportunity and a better steward of the international liberal order than a China would be or a Vladimir Putin would be. So it seems like there's a, you have a, there's like within what you're describing, there's a vision of economics. There's also a vision of ethics and there's also a vision of, of, uh, of global uh, power politics. You know, we've been, I've been rethinking my knee jerk support for the war in Ukraine because I, I think Putin is so terrible and, and obviously the Ukrainians are admirable, but I've been rereading uh, some of the John Her- John Mearsheimer, the famous University of Chicago uh, political scientist and one of the fathers, I think, of international relations up there, at least with Kenneth Waltz and, and others who have argued for kind of understanding that the United States is an actor in the in the world system. And uh, I think you're also a proponent of that. So there's a there's a holism here that I think it's really important for people to see and understand about your way of thinking about the United States and the world. Yeah, I, I'm a realist uh, like uh, John, whom I know, and, and many other of these these you know greater scholars to, to whom I defer. the The realist view is that, uh, like it or not, there are two tiers of states in in the world. There are the great powers and everybody else. And the great powers are great military powers. And ever since the Industrial Revolution, the only way you can be a great military power is to have your own uh, world-class manufacturing base. It can be in an empire. It doesn't have to be in a nation state. But but you have to be a great military industrial power. Uh, and there, there are close to 200, I think like 180, 190 uh, formally sovereign states in the UN General Assembly. Their average population, as I recall, is about 30 million people. It's maybe twice the size of L.A. I mean, you have countries like Sweden, which are half the size of metro L.A. in population. Uh, Now, up until 1945, these territories were governed by a handful of uh, European empires. Uh, And then as a result of decolonization, which we quite rightly supported, they were made independent. But... The fact is there's still uh, only a handful of countries that can be genuinely described as great powers. Uh, There's the U.S. and China, the two biggest economies in the world now in absolute terms. Uh, But also you get a second tier of mostly Western uh, uh, great powers, uh, Britain, uh, uh, Germany, France, uh, Russia is bigger than you would think because if you, you look only at its productive capability, manufacturing, energy, and mining. A lot of our GDP in the U.S., uh, a great French scholar named Jacques Sapir has written about this, is based on like real estate house flipping, you know, and financial transactions. If you, if you compare manufacturing to manufacturing, then China and Russia are much more powerful relative to the U.S. You know, they're much more competitive than, than we want to admit. But so what does this mean for small countries? You know, uh, in the words of Porfirio Diaz, uh, the dictator of Mexico in in the 1900s, Mexico is so far from God and so close to the United States. 
right? So sadly, if you are like most sovereign countries in the world, either you arm yourself like a porcupine, uh, you know, to maintain your independence, or you are an ally or a client of a major great power. Uh, and in the case of Ukraine and Taiwan, this really gets to the difference between a certain kind of liberal internationalism and realpolitik, great power realism. Uh, one of the, expe- the the view of the realists generally are not warmongers. You know, they want peace, but it's peace based on on coexistence among the great powers. Uh, that are, are status quo, that are not like Nazi Germany trying to conquer the world and exterminate uh, uh, other nations. But, but they may very well be authoritarian. They may be quite repressive, but, but they're not inherently expansionist and threatening to their neighbors. Uh, and one of the expedients is uh, spheres of influence and the neutralization of countries. Uh, Switzerland uh, and the Netherlands were neutralized for centuries because they were in between France and powerful German states like Prussia. Uh, and this was a way of avoiding conflict among the great powers. Uh, now, against that, you have uh, really all of our presidents since the end of the Cold War, including Biden, Biden. saying the age of uh, great power spheres of influence is over. Uh, and therefore, you know, if Ukraine wants to put U.S. missiles right on the Russian border and join NATO, it can. Well, but that raises the obvious question. Can the uh, the People's Liberation Army of China uh, put uh, Chinese troops with uh, Chinese missiles all along the U.S.-Mexican border if Mexico decides to, right? Wouldn't that be like a free decision of Mexico? You know, we would we would try to deter this rather strenuously. I'm not saying we could go to war, but it would be, it would dwarf the Cuban Missile Crisis if that happened. So, so I think you know at some point we're going to have to uh, choose one of these two options. Either we see the goal of U.S. foreign policy as avoiding great power conflict if we can. There's some we can't avoid, uh, and that we, we and the conflict would be better than peace. Uh, but but if we can avoid it by compromise and by negotiations and arms control treaties and so on, uh, we should try that before we immediately declare, as this administration has done, that Putin must go, that he's illegitimate, that he should be removed from office, that Russia has no interest, any Russian regime, even a democratic one, has no interest in whether a hostile alliance is right at its border. Mearsheimer's argument and you can correct me if I get it wrong, but is basically that the United States in particular, but NATO in general, provoked Putin's invasion by uh, starting, I believe, in 2008 by making clear that we wanted Ukraine to join NATO and eventually join the European Union. He thinks this was a terrible mistake, that it failed to respect great power politics as you're describing it. And that it distracted us dangerously from the true great power rival, which is China. And that the, uh, the provocation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a terrible uh, mistake and that we need to negotiate. We need to push for negotiations for peace. I'm sure I, it sounds like he would agree with you that 
that we should not be trying, we should not have regime change in Russia as our goal, that that's dangerous. Um, do I have that right? If my summary of Mearsheimer's position and, and, and does it, is that your, I, um, I, I think that that's accurate. There are actually two aspects of it. One is, uh, the, the, in terms of provocation, provocation doesn't mean the other person is good. The other person may be a criminal, right? Uh, but if, if you know somebody is holding someone hostage and tells the police, if you take another step, I'll shoot the hostage, and then they take another step and they shoot the hostage, right? Did they provoke the Well, yeah, I think they did. They did provoke the criminal. Criminal's that. What, what he's going to do doesn't mean he's not a criminal, uh, in, in the case of Ukraine, they, they, it was linked, it was Georgia and Ukraine under President George W. Bush. Uh, he pushed towards the end of his term to incorporate Ukraine and, and Georgia simultaneously into NATO. And Putin told him, I think, it, in person at, at a summit, no. Uh, and, and as the U.S. proceeded to push Georgia into NATO and uh, in EU membership, uh, Putin invaded Georgia. Uh, and broke off South Ossetia, uh, a little piece of it. Uh, and that was kind of like the shot across the bow. Uh, and then when the U.S. did the same thing with Ukraine, Putin invades uh, eastern Ukraine in, in, uh, indirectly through little green men, through mercenaries in, in 2014. Uh, so in that sense, the 2022 invasion was merely the escalation of a war that started really in, in 2014. And in both cases, it probably would not have happened uh, if the United States uh, had not pushed so aggressively to incorporate them. Well, now against this, people can say, but see, the fact that they invaded after the U.S. pushed to incorporate them shows that they should have been incorporated, right? That they were in danger all along from Russia. So, you know, historians will debate this forever. Uh, but but I, I think, and now the other point that you raised is regime change, uh, the United States, for most of its history, did not insist that the government of the enemy be overthrown and the enemy leaders be put on trial and maybe executed as a condition of ending the war. That was, you know, when we, we fought two wars with Britain, we didn't insist that the British overthrow King George, right? It's, we worked out a peace treaty. Uh, so on with the Mexican War, the Mexican government in the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 48, uh, we were willing to deal with it. it, was, it there were various coups and so on, but we, we, we negotiated a treaty with them. We do not require regime change. Uh, uh, this goes back to World War I, where uh, President Wilson foolishly made the removal of Kaiser Wilhelm a precondition uh, for uh, uh, peace with uh, Germany. And so, and Wilhelm was deposed, uh, and the government that deposed him, the social democratic government, was viewed as traitors by much of the German people, including Adolf Hitler. Uh, and had the monarchy remained, there would have been no Hitler because the, the monarch would have had greater legitimacy than any mere chancellor like, like Adolf Hitler. We learned our lesson after World War II or so, I thought, because Hirohito, let's be clear, we, we pretended that he'd been a powerless figurehead after World War II. He had been a gung-ho, militaristic, fascistic racist. He was completely behind all of Japan's invasions and crimes. Nevertheless, in order to, you know, have a soft landing, you know, to let them save face, we kept uh, 
uh, Hirohito as the emperor. Uh, and we did this even with Saddam Hussein, right? And the Gulf War, we, we let Saddam remain in power and then we negotiated and continued to bomb him now and then, but regime change was not a, a goal in the Gulf War. Uh, so the two things we've seen since the end of the Cold War have been relatively new in American history. They've been wars of choice, like the invasions of, uh, of Iraq in 2003, uh, I would argue invading Afghanistan was necessary because they were harboring uh, the the uh, Al Qaeda and, and Bin Laden. Uh, Syria, Libya, these were wars of choice. This was not the last resort after we'd exhausted all other alternatives. So we've had wars of choice and wars of regime change, and we need to quit. In what? So it sounds like. Um, so I guess one one factual question and one more um, you know explanatory question. At what point do you think the Biden administration or others in the pro-confrontation, uh, you know, the, the pro-incorporating Ukraine uh, establishment, at what point did they decide that Putin had to go? Was that really just after he invaded Ukraine or was there, did you see, is there evidence that they were wanting to have regime change in Russia before he invaded Ukraine. And I think relatedly is the, like what is behind the, the drive, the drive to expand NATO to include Ukraine and what is behind these wars of choice? Is it, is it what Mearsheimer says that we were in a unipolar moment? Is it that we forgot that there's another big fight that we have with the Chinese or is it that, we don't want to have a confrontation with the Chinese or there's, let's say there's powerful people that don't want the confrontation with the Chinese and they would rather see us tied up with Russia. I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, but uh, you know, you work on the Twitter files long enough and <laughs> you discover, you discover things behind the scenes. So how do we think about, how do you think about what's really driving this desire for, for regime change and confrontation uh, that's really, I think 20 years old at this point, right? Yeah, having, having worked uh, directly or as a consultant in a lot of foreign policy agencies, so usually fairly minor roles, but nevertheless, I, I know how they work. Uh, I don't think there's like some grand conspiracy mastermind cabal. I, th I think John Mearsheimer get, gets it right in his discussion of liberal hegemony. So the U.S., because of purely contingent historical circumstances, the temporary economic collapse of Japan and of Germany, the uh, collapse of Yeltsin's Russia into poverty and, and chaos, uh, and the, uh, the fact that China was still poor and catching up in the 90s and 2000s, it created the illusion, maybe it was the reality for 10 or 20 years, I don't know, the illusion that the U.S. was this, the only superpower left. And really, they meant the only great power. Uh, and therefore, in the future, I mean, I remember this, and you remember it too, from the 90s, uh, and, and 2000, there would be no more great power conflicts. The U.S. would police the world. Uh, you know, China and Russia would take a secondary place in the American-led order the way Britain and France and Germany and Japan did. And the only threats were super-empowered terrorists and little tiny rogue states with weapons of mass destruction, right, like Iraq. Uh, and that was the conception uh, strategically now, the, the point that Mearsheimer makes is, okay, suppose you're one of a number of great powers 
suddenly all the others commit suicide or they die of cardiac arrest or something. You're the one remaining superpower. So what do you do with this power? And, and Mearsheimer's answer is, the answer is radically undetermined. It, it, just, it can be kind of random. It depends on what your elite is, what their culture, what they want to do, right? Which is politics, so, right? It's politics. So, uh, and, but I, and I, then this is where I would bring in the cultural uh, uh, element. So if you're Russia, uh, let's say if this happened to Russia, the U.S. collapses, China collapses, Russia, you know, is so Russia has a historical cultural memory of just being invaded all the time and millions of people dying. It's, you know, Napoleon, Kaiser, Hitler, and so on. So, you know, that's a very tra- traumatized history. The United States has this uh, uh, history where we, we wait until the Russians have suffered 95% of the casualties against Hitler. And then we land in Normandy and we, we sort of go plink, you know, uh, and then the Germans collapse. And then we say, oh, look what we did, like, you know, our credible power. Uh, so, so we think war is easy and cheap and, you know, compared to countries that have suffered much more. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.
Well, you're building a 